1: no purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
3: Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. Sorry for a bit of a pause in this show. We've just had a few days off, but uh, we're back with you now to preview the one-day series, the Royal London series between England and Australia, of course. It's Simon Hughes here, and Simon Mann is also on the show, of course. And we've got guests. We've got Chris Wokes back in the England one-day side in the white ball team for this series. And also later, we're going to hear from Adam Gilchrist, the legendary Australia wicketkeeper batsman, on his thoughts about the current Australian one-day team. So, Simon, you did the uh, the T20s. Um, I mean, What did... Do you think uh, the two teams learn from the T20s?
1: I think one thing we learned from the T20's full stop was we really need a crowd. I think they, they missed a the crowd. Just imagine the atmosphere at the Aegeus Bowl last Friday if there had been a full house here watching that Australia capitulation. A remarkable turnaround. I don't know how England won that game. Even now, it's a week on. Here, I'll give you work. a
3: crowd if you like. There you are. There's a, there's a <laughs> bit of background noise to keep you, keep you happy. Go on, carry well,
1: on. Well, we need to play that Old Trafford uh, the next few days. But yeah, No, it was... Uh, It was a a strange old night. Uh, The other thing, I suppose, is how important Owen Morgan is to England's white ball side when he's out there. There just seems to be a bit of authority in the field and and control in the field. Not that England got enough runs in the final uh, one-day international. Owen Morgan not there, of course. He was sitting on the sidelines with his finger injury. Uh, As for Australia, I think they've got a few problems to sort out, perhaps, in their middle order. I know Adam Gilchrist is going to speak about that a little later on. Uh, What do they do? They've got some gun players in the likes of Smith and Finch and Warner at the top of the order, but they've got some other issues to sort out, perhaps, in their middle order as well.
3: They got found out a bit by Adil Rashid in that T20 series. He took six wickets, didn't he? And he kept taking key batsman i suppose it must be hard for a, a team that haven't played uh, any cricket really for 6 months or so or 4 months so uh, it, it's been hard for them to adapt whereas england have been out there uh, a lot of those players have, have, have played some some tests and so on so i suppose it's a little bit easier for england but rashid a, a key man wasn't he in that uh, in that series the, the one day the the t20s so probably as important in in this one day series to follow which of course is the first time that England's World Cup winning team has been more or less reunited at home. There was a couple of uh, one days in South Africa but uh, they were missing players then uh, so more of the team sort of reassembling now the World Cup winning team just missing Stokes and, and Liam Plunkett sadly um, out of the scene uh, but well Stokes obviously just for, for family reasons but, but Plunkett not selected so um, I suppose what we should talk about really is is whether this England 50-over team can move on. Can they ascend another mountain? Uh, and what do they need to do to do that? Because, you know, often it's said that in sport, it's OK getting to the top, but it's another matter staying at the top. At the moment, England's 50-over side are top of the rankings, the number one in the ICC rankings, and Australia are only fifth. But you can see other teams... Working on their ploys, looking at their strategies, learning from England and and the way they, you know, they're totally fearless, aren't they? That sort of mindset that England have brought into 50 over cricket and adapted some of the T20
1: skills as well
3: has really sort of put them on a pedestal.
1: Well, the first challenge for this England one day side is to qualify for the next World Cup. Uh, This is the, the World Super League that England are going into tomorrow. They've already played some matches against Ireland in that. They won two and lost one. They have to qualify. They have to finish in the, the top seven. You'd expect them to do that. If they don't do that, then something is going to go seriously wrong during the qualification process. You play at series at home and series away over three matches, which is a different dynamic as well. So you don't have these elongated series of, of five matches where you know, it's possible for teams to lose focus. You're, you're right on it. There's almost knockout matches in their own right. So there's that. And then I suppose they have to find a way to play on Indian pitches, to prepare for Indian pitches, because we've seen England have been so good on shirt fronts, haven't they? What they like is, you know, absolutely blue perfect pitches, flat pitches, which they can smash the ball, put pressure on the opposition, and then their bowlers, uh, which is, you know, their bowling attack, probably not their strongest suit, their batting suit is the strongest suit, and then, you know, give their bowlers something to defend. So that's the challenge then them, to adapt to playing on pitches that that spin are a bit slower, and actually, Owen Morgan has been speaking about this. He said that you know, playing at Old Trafford and playing at somewhere like Cardiff are the best venues in England to prepare for playing a World Cup in India. Albeit that World Cup is three years away, but I suppose the the white ball players have also got the T20 World Cup next year in India as a, a goal as well. So there's almost like double preparation for those two events. You know, a lot of World Cup cricket to be played in India in the next. Three years, so that that that, that's the challenge for England is to sort of change their, adapt their style really to better play on on Indian surfaces.
3: Mm, I suppose also uh, with that in mind, and you you talk mainly about batting and and the maybe the the slight adaptation they might need to make to to bat on those pitches, but the other thing is bowling on them, and especially bowling spin on them. And Rashid, as we mentioned at the start, not only. Uh, excelling in the T20s, but uh, also there are rumours and murmurs that he might get the the call up to to play Test cricket again as well. England likely to play Tests in Sri Lanka and India after Christmas, though we don't know when or exactly where. But they'll be on dryish pitches, and Rashid, you know, is clearly in his prime as a bowler at the moment. But you know, who could support him in those uh, environments in one day cricket? They they haven't got a, a Don Bess really. They haven't pitched him into the fifty over, yet Obviously, Moen Ali is sort of in residence, but he, he's not bowled that much in T twenty. I mean, maybe they will use him in the in the fifty over, but he didn't play in the the last few matches of the World Cup. So, you know, England might need to look at, at blooding another spinner in 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 uh, in this fifty over team to to really have a, a very strong suit of bowlers to, to, to plan the the next couple of years. I suppose with Archer reunited with Chris Wokes at the top of the bowling order. Uh, that does give England you know, a lot of potential wicket taking there. Wokes obviously very good with the new ball in English conditions especially and Archer got all the kind of capabilities and, and speed so uh, with him and Mark Wood you know that does look like a good three-pronged attack. Of course, Chris Wokes hasn't played uh, much white ball cricket really for quite a long time. He's been in the, the test team playing red ball, but no white ball experience. He didn't play in the T20s uh, just the other day or against Pakistan. So uh, I asked him, you know, what is the difference between bowling with the white ball and the red ball, especially if you haven't done much of it recently?
4: Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously the balls are different, which some people might find hard to, to grasp. Like, how can a ball be so different to bowl with? But... They do react differently at your hand. Um, you know, obviously the red ball, particularly the red juke's swings, um, you know, don't generally get a bit of movement in the air and off the seam occasionally. Um, whereas a white ball, they tend not to do much as, you know, or certainly don't do as much for as long. Um, you might get a bit of swing with the new ball potentially for an over. Um, but after that they generally go pretty straight. So therefore you you know what you're trying to deliver as a bowler. You know changes compared to what you do with the red ball. You're trying to you know hit the wicket as hard as possible. Use your variations, which as we touched on, you don't tend to do in Test cricket. So yeah, the balls do change, and it's more a mindset, I suppose, of what the batsman's trying to do as well. You know he's trying to be a lot more aggressive, trying to hit you for fours and, and sixes, whereas you know in Test cricket you're, you're challenging people's defence and trying to outlast the opposition a little bit, whereas you know, the white ball stuff, it, it all moves forward a bit quicker. Is it actually in a way,
3: almost, you, you, you said there about mindset, is it almost that in test cricket, you as the bowler are the attacker, whereas in one day white
4: ball cricket, you as the bowler are the defender? Yeah, in a way, yeah. I think you try, you try to get away from that mindset, I think, because you still want to be able to attack and try and take wickets. And, you know, the best way to, defend in white ball cricket is by taking wickets and attacking so so to speak so the the better you can attack and and get wickets early on um the easier it is to defend runs so it's um it's a tricky one because you do have a little bit in the back of your mind of damage limitation in white ball cricket um as a bowler but then you also know that wickets are the best way of, of saving runs so it's getting that balance right can be tricky you had nearly, what, two months
3: in lockdown uh, playing at those two venues in Test Cricket. So you were unable to see your family. Um, so when you finally got home after that stint, what was the first thing that you did? Other than, you know, obviously
4: hugging your nearest and dearest and kids and stuff. What was the first thing that you did when you got home? Yeah, it's, um, it's funny, isn't it? You're away from home for such a long period of time and I'm sure you had this whilst you were you were away touring and things like this, but got home and um, you know first thing that was on the list was to do some chores, cut the grass, get that done. It was about this long, um, so yeah. I mean, other than that, it was, just, it, was it was great to get home and, and see family and friends, obviously having been away for such a long period of time, and uh, just it had a very weird feel to it, I suppose, because you know we're used to touring and being away from home. That's kind of you know the norm for us cricketers, but been away for such a long and extended period whilst in this country um and in the environment that we've been in just felt you know that little bit bit weird and a bit different as it has been for everyone but um you know really nice to get home and and come crashing back down to earth i suppose <laughs> who, who was the the best and worst companion in lockdown well, it's an easy question, an easy answer, should I say? Because the best person to be around is Mark Wood, and then the worst person to be around is Mark Wood. So it's <laughs> you know little snippets of Woody during that time was fantastic, but too much of him was was way too much. So um, you yeah, know that was pretty easy. But we've got a good group; everyone gets on really well. Um, you know, and you, you suppose you learn a few different things about people when you're with them so often. But um, you know, I think we've got a good group where we kind of respect each other's privacy and. You know, you know, if a guy needs a bit of time away, you know, you give them that space and, you know, the environment that we've got within the team is, is very good and, and everyone gets on well. So, um, you know, I suppose when you're in, you know, supposedly a, a house or a hotel for, for such a long period of time, that, that does help.
3: Quite funny, actually, that that Mark Wood is both your best and worst companion when you're in the bio bubble. But he does sort of add something, doesn't he? He, He's certainly on the field and and you can feel it probably off the field as well. He just gets that sort of energy levels up and enthusiasm. And I'm sure there's never a dull moment with with Mark Wood around and his pace as well. You know that he was he was, again, notching sort of 95 miles an hour in in the uh, T20s, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, there was, yeah, some extreme pace, and he helped England uh, to win the series. Uh, it, it's amazing, though, when you watch someone like Wood bowl. If, if you get it a bit wrong, as he did in that, that over that yielded 14 that helped Australia win on Tuesday, if you get a bit wrong, you just get absolutely smashed. The The, the quality of batting against anything that's just slightly offline or, or length is just so high. Marcus Stoinis hitting him over Deep mid-wicket or wide long on, almost well in front of square for six, and then a ball is just wide of off stump, crashing him through the offside uh, for four as well. It, it, it's incredible, isn't it? it you, you can have pace, but if you, you you've got to harness it with that that accuracy and skill as well. If you if you don't, these batsmen are are good enough to just hit you everywhere. What
3: about uh, Joe Root? He's back in the side now. So again, didn't play in the T20s, but uh, very much likely to to be number three for England in these. Three one-day matches, and actually, I asked Marcus Ruskothic uh, the other day about Joe Root and whether he thought there was still a role, given the incredible advance of, you know, breathtaking batting in T20, especially, and the way that England go about the 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 innings with Jason Roy and Johnny Bairstow opening the batting in 50-over cricket as well, I I asked him if he thought Joe Root still had a role, or a batsman like Joe Root still had a role in 50-over. And he said, absolutely. You still need, in that longer format, you still need someone to knock it around, to be that uh, stabilising influence, maybe to rebuild if there's an early wicket or two. And and to actually, you know, especially on bigger grounds, some of the grounds in, in somewhere like Australia or even maybe in India, if they're bigger boundaries, say Calcutta, somewhere like that, uh, knocking it into gaps and, and working the ball around against spin as well, where the ball's turning a bit, is an invaluable art.
1: Well, Root, of course, played in England's World T20 side in 2016. He played in the final, actually took a couple of wickets and his his first over, so his, his bowling is, is useful as well. His one-day record for England is, is fantastic. He averages over 50, strike rate of nearly 88, and he scored... 1600s he's played 146 games he's absolutely vital for England's uh, 50 over chances and you know what he what he does as well is he's so good at rotating the strike you know he's so good at scoring you know close to a, a runner ball and, and and ticking the board over and he's you know he's that counterpoint to England's you know, aggressive uh, top order players I, I wouldn't totally back against him coming back for the World Cup, and the World T20 next year. I mean, the way England seem to be moving away from him a bit in in T20 cricket, but I think they know they've sort of got him in the locker in in case they need uh, to go back to him. But Mm. at the moment, someone like David Milan has been taking his chance. You know, it's hard to leave him out of the side, although how they fit them all in when they're all available again, I'm thinking of, you know, Jason Roy, who's back in this one-day side, of course didn't play in the T20 series. You know, how do you fit them all in? (laughs) Jason Roy and you know Ben Stokes to come back as well you know everyone says it's a it's a good problem but someone's got to solve it somehow it's not an easy one to to sort out But in the end you just have to be ruthless don't you and, and possibly even you know you even mix and match a bit perhaps depending on the the surface you're playing on I and mean, you know we've been to India many times and you, you think you know India being sort of Indian pitches but they're not all the same you know the Mahali and Bangalore say uh, you know, are quite different from, you know, mm. some of the other surfaces in India. Say, I don't know, Mumbai, somewhere like that. You know, Bangalore is a bit there for the for the seamers often and say, Mahali, it bounces a bit more and comes on nicely. Whereas, you know, other grounds, the ball is, you know, is a bit slower and lower. And then it depends on how old the pitches are as well, whether it's a used pitch. So, you know, it's not all just Indian pitches are all the same.
3: Mm. Yeah, true. Just looking ahead to this series, the three one-days against Australia. Australia, not quite the one-day side of old, I feel. If you think back to those teams that won the World Cup three times in a row, dominated by Pontings and Gilchrist and and McGrath and so on, uh, they they did have every base covered. Whereas this side, you sort of feel a little bit vulnerable. A good top order batsman, obviously Finch and Warner, uh, Steve Smith, we all know about. The middle order hasn't quite really cemented its position, hasn't quite established itself. They're not quite sure. There's a sort of Glenn Maxwell who's a bit of an enigma and there's Marcus Stoinis, who can come off, but seems maybe a bit limited. He's not great against spin. So, do you think? I mean, whereas England have got you know Butler, who will probably bat at six, who's so adaptable and so dangerous. Is that the area? Do you think that
1: Australia are weak? Yeah, and Butler might well bat at five in this one-day series. Just depends. There are no Ben Stokes in the side. Well, yeah, that, I think that's what they're concerned about. They're concerned about the middle order. They're concerned about their batting against. Uh, spin bowling there is of course one player who has not played so far who's in his international infancy in terms of one day international cricket and that's Manus Labashain he's only played seven one day internationals we saw how good he's been in in Red Bull cricket in the last year or so very good ashes and then a brilliant winter in Australia he's only played seven one day internationals but he's already served notice he's averaging 50 and his strike rate is 94 so that will be the one you know thing to focus on in the next few days to see how he goes in one day international cricket because you know that, that is someone that they can use and they can you know allow to to, to flourish in their middle order so you know that is a potential a solution for him we we saw how good he was and he's such a, you know he's such a what is it cricket badger isn't he Cricket you badger know, for sure yeah, he's he's another one you know he's another one oh, right, smith good. he's he's a yeah. he's a smith clone isn't he yeah, I I feel with this Australia one day. so I feel with this current Australia one day side that 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 those top two a bit like any bit like England in a way that you know they're so dynamic at the top. But Warner and Finch are so important to them. If you get and if you get Warner early, you mm. can do so much damage. You get Warner early, an early wicket or two, it you know, really sets this Australian side back. We did see it in the twenty twenty when Warner was out for nought. and of course the World Cup semi final, England got Warner early in that match as well, and, and it had, just had that debilitating effect on australia despite the fact that steve smith uh, got runs you you really feel warner is a player that can dominate you and bully you and he bullies you not just with his aggressive batting but also with the his running between the the wickets as well interesting on warner just just talking digressing slightly talking about you know playing in the bubble his his comments you know a few weeks ago he he talked about them again in, in southampton about whether he's prepared to, you know, go on play, you know, if, if the coronavirus is still around for a long time and cricket has to be played in these bio bubbles, you know, whether he's really committed to, to go on playing for, for Australia, playing international cricket because his family is so important to him and it's not easy to get the families into the bubbles. I think for the IPL, uh when Morgan was talking about this this morning. He was asked about it. You know, what, what's going to be different? You know, these sort of weeks, and months of being in the bubble. He said, "Well, at least in in uh, in the UAE, the hotels they'll be staying at. Are, you know, I think the KKR staying at a hotel. You know, with a beach and a and a pool. And families will be allowed in the bubble. So that is a you know a bonus for IPL players, but not necessarily that luxury for international players uh, depending where you are in the world certainly not in this country I mean no no beach at Old Trafford for example no swimming pool <laughs> at Old Trafford and no families as well I'm not sure you'd want a beach at Old Trafford actually because you'd,
3: you'd have to have an umbrella up all the time when you were on it wouldn't you um, just looking at the Australia setup it was interesting to to listen to Adam Gilchrist talking about it because of course he was a, an absolute groundbreaker In the late 90s, he was scoring at 96 runs per 100 balls, which was much quicker than most people. And 17 one-day hundreds, uh, a stack of runs against all countries, numerous World Cup medals, an incredible player at the top of the order. And I think from talking to him, I got the sense that he felt that there was something just not quite right about this Australian batting order. Is it perhaps the middle order, that lower middle order, is that a problem area, do you think?
0: Yeah, Simon, so I think uh, it, it, it was clearly shown again in the in the T20 format and it's been a little bit of a handbrake or, or, a, or a hurdle for the Australians uh, in the one-day sort of format for a number of years as well. Uh, partic- those middle overs, particularly against the spinning ball. And, you know, not only does, does the run rate come down, it, they tend to lose wickets and, and tend to lose them in clumps too. And we saw that, obviously, with the uh, the collapse uh, in that first game, that was, I guess, just pressure, perhaps rustiness from six months out of the game and rushing over there, and all the unique situations that uh, all cricketers find themselves in at the moment. But um, yeah, I, I think that's probably the area where just where other teams have tended to be really accelerating and starting to uh, play a more aggressive brand or style of cricket, if you like, with the bat in hand through those middle overs. That's where that's been our Achilles heel for, for a number of years. So that will be challenging again. Obviously, with the, the makeup of the England bowling lineup and, and and how everyone in world cricket is probably aware of that that handbrake uh, for Australia there. So I don't think anything's going to be different by way of approach from the English towards uh, that batting lineup for the Australians. Uh, it's all on the Aussies to work out what the what the psychology will be, what the match plan will be. Uh, and what the makeup of the of the batting order will be. I just think as a general rule, it is that they're very much caught between the, the consolidation period, not trying to lose wickets, uh, but also just how hard they can go. Um, I guess the other thing too is that at the top of the order, uh, David Warner has been so successful, but as opposed to, he, people relate to David Warner being so aggressive at the top of the order, and, and you know, a, a shot a minute. But I think that's been more in his test cricket earlier on in his career. His one-day cricket and his one-day centuries have more so been a little bit more calculated and a little bit more um, tailored to to building up as he goes along and and not so fiery at the top of the order. Does that create then a little bit in this modern way of playing and these scores of 300, 350, um, is that sort of a bit too old school for what is going on now when you compare it to... You know, the likes of Berto at the top, um, you know, and the way he just goes out, uh, and Jason Roy and so on, and Joss in the in the T20s. So in a way, it's the pressure, perhaps, of lack of the real fast scoring rate at the top, that
3: puts the emphasis on that middle order uh, to to you know up the up the ante. And you know, is who's the who's the solution to that? I mean, Glenn Maxwell is a bit of an enigma. Marcus has had a tremendous big bash, but. Is he the guy in the middle overs because he's not a great manipulator of the ball? So, who's the, who's the solution to that kind
0: of area? Well, I reckon a guy that in time could very well be the solution, whether it's going out at number one or two or even getting a chance in that middle order is Josh Phillippe. And I think I that's knew you'd a, say that. Yeah. 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 A, per, a co
4: Perthite. Uh,
0: yeah, that's right, born and bred in Perth and uh know his dad very well who worked at the Wackerford for well over 20 years but uh, a very exciting young talent still still learning his craft he's still learning about himself and what his capabilities are and and of course match situations but but the quicker you can get them exposed to the top level with that uninhibited sort of approach and he can maybe catch uh, capture a few teams uh, off guard. That's only going to fulfil his or instil more confidence in him to not suddenly have to think he's got to rein it in because he's at the next level. Um, you know, at some. Time, he's a right-handed, he goes, right-handed version of you, isn't he? Oh, I don't know. He goes pretty hard at it. Yeah, slogger, if that's what you're calling him. Yeah, <laughs> but um, no, he's just a really aggressive young kid and just observing. You know what took England to the number one position. What had them consistently in number one in the four years leading up to that World Cup victory was just, a, clearly you guys all know it better than me, but just that change in mindset from the captaincy to the approach of batting, the way that they want to just attack and you're gonna have your train wrecks occasionally, but um, yeah, just as a general statement, a fraction conservative, that Aussie batting lineup, um, and a guy like Philippi could but could be a catalyst for change.
1: Well, that's Adam Gilchrist, who, of course, would walk into an all-time combined England-Australia 50-over side. Uh, who, Who else? walks into that 50-over side. You've been debating this in the last couple of days, haven't you? I mean, Gilchrist was, was part of that debate and Marcus uh, Truscothic as well. Uh, didn't Marcus Truscothic get into the 11? and David <laughs> yeah. Warner didn't? I'm quite about that.
3: Yeah, true. I mean, so this was a little event put on by Royal London, the, the sponsors of, of the three one-day matches. And uh, they were debating, you know, who to put in the combined all-time one-day 11. Uh, they obligingly picked each other which, of course, you do in these situations. So the opening pair, Truscothic and Gilchrist, pretty good, I have to say. I mean, that's sort of over 30 one-day international hundreds and, you know, a phenomenal record and very dangerous at the top of the order. The great thing about Truscothic, actually, was he just did it naturally. He didn't play really any differently in 50-over than he did in tests. He he, he saw the ball, he, he smacked it for four. Very simple method and very successful. Warner's record is slightly better, I suppose, but I don't know, I just quite like Triscothic's almost sort of lugubrious style, and, and he's just a, a very good team man, he's just someone you want in your team, he, he's, he's very reliable, I think, and, and in quite an explosive way, so I'd have him with Gilchrist, I'm afraid, ahead of Warner
1: what about Besto as well Besto and warner are good good yeah. contenders on I mean, bairstow still playing of course he's helped england win a world cup um yeah he's played 80 one day matches he's already scored 900 his strike rate uh, better than just it's, it's, it's not easy to compare eras also that's the other thing as well it's about styles england have decided to play in a in a particular way
3: sort of belligerent in the last way Four
1: years yeah and so that's you know they've changed the game in a way mm, they've, they they've taken it they taken yeah. it to another level or taken their game to another level. And if perhaps, you know, when, I mean, Marcus Trescoff, he was, was a wonderful player to watch in, in one-day cricket. Uh, but if he was encouraged to play in an even more expansive way, you know, who knows what his stats figures uh, would have been. You know, it's not easy uh, com- comparing eras. It's not easy, I think, in, because this England one-day side of the last four years, I mean, such an outlier compared to what came before it. You know but ba- you know basically there was before 2016 and after 2016. Whereas with Australia, it's not quite the same because they've, you know, they've had quality for for quite a long time now. And you you think of, I mean, I think someone like Smith and Warner would have been magnificent players. Of course, they would have been in that you know great Australian side, and they'd have been vying for their place in that you know great Australian side that won World Cups because they they are absolutely top class players. And without them, and we saw it in the last year, I think without them. Uh, you know, while they were banned, you know Australia—they were not the same team. I mean, they clearly not. They were they are magnificent players. So the lineup we came up with in the end, and obviously you can argue about
3: this, uh, Simon and, and the listeners, but uh, the, the, the lineup we came up with was Triscothic and Gilchrist Ponting at three, Peterson four, Morgan at five, Stokes six, Butler seven, Warn eight, and then three bowlers: McGrath, Goff and Mitchell Stark. So not too many of the current Australian team in that side, only really Mitchell Stark,
1: but several of the current
3: England side in
1: it. Mm. Well, they're, they're great pub debates, aren't they? You know, who makes uh, various 11s? You can make uh, cases for all sorts of players. You, you, I mean, you could even make a, a, a place for, for Rashid if you wanted a bit of extra spin. I mean, not ahead of Shane Warne, obviously, but I mean, that side seemed quite uh pace orientated again it depends where you're going to play but i mean you could actually put together a decent 11 to play against them i mean there are players like best who just mentioned him gooch mark War, steve War. steve War played in 325 one day internationals and scored you know seven and a half thousand runs yeah his average was only 32 of course he was coming in lower down the order and his strike rate was 75 but he also took 195 wickets as well. So, yeah, you know, there's that sort actually, of all-round Yeah,
3: I mean, he, in fact, it, it, it's a good point to mention him because he was a, an underrated one-day player. And I remember that from sort of personal hardship, actually, trying to bowl at the death in a one-day game for Middlesex against Somerset in his early years. And he just, he was impossible to contain. I, I, I think it's the hardest... Uh, person I've ever had to bowl at in a one-day format actually because he just moved around the crease and with effortless ease he put everything away for four and there were some good balls in there there were some almost inch perfect Yorkers which he managed to to get sort of outside off stump and kind of shovel for four through square leg he wasn't an innovator particularly but he was just incredibly effective and just had that you know totally clenched-jaw, gimlet-eyed determination to find a way to score. And it was relentless. And, and he did that in, well, at least two World Cups, didn't he? Yeah.
1: Winners in 1999, that, that famous victory uh, when he was what, batting at Headingley and the, the supposedly Herschel Gibbs dropping the World Cup and Australia <laughs> going on to the the final after that tied semi-final. And it was Craig McDermott, 203 one-day wickets and 138 matches and um, these are just players off, off the top of my head really I'm you know I'm sat down and thought carefully about Matthew Hayden I suppose we should mention well him too. yeah ab- absolutely Matthew Hayden yeah N- no doubt about it a bully um, a bully at the top of the order yeah and there's they they had such a strong side Australia they uh, and, and and this side I think it's it's still pretty good. I, you know, they they are one of the challenges. I mean, they they got to the semi final of the World Cup last year. I mean, Hayden 161, one day internationals, uh, mm. over six thousand runs, strike rate of seventy eight ten hundreds. I mean, it's, you, know, you look at strike rates now and they've gone up, haven't mm. they? And and that's the thing it's, it's about the era in which you play, and it's you know it's about the context of the game and and. Uh, how, how you see your side overall against the opposition as well, and what you feel is enough to to win a match. There's no doubt in that, and you know regulations change as well. That's the other thing. Yeah, the, the you know, fielding restrictions they change over time. They go one way and then the other. So there's all sorts of things to to feed into that sort yeah, of yeah. And computer. I suppose the other
3: thing is that team that Australian team, played a huge number of matches. They had all those tri-series in Australia mm. and they went on tour and obviously they played right to the death in many World Cups. So, you know, they played more games. Uh, you look at, say, Gilchrist, who played nearly 300 one-day internationals and, you know, you, Ricky Ponting played, I think, 400. So England's players are still playing catch-up to that number, that that quantity, that, you know, depth of experience But certainly over the last two or three years, England have focused more on that uh, that amount of games, getting lots of games under their belt and staying with the same group of players as well. And probably that's been an instrumental part in why they've become so good, because they're trusting each other. They've worked in uh, lots of different environments together. They've seen lots of scenarios together and been able to to perform well and, and win the matches in different situations
1: yeah that's going to change a bit now though isn't it because the, the the series they're going to play are three match series as part of the you know the the world super league qualifying for the world cup it's all been rationalized so gone are the the seven match one day series i i've been to india and i'm sure i'm sure that i've worked on at least two seven match one day series and, and yeah, they're a grind are. actually aren't oh. they i mean they're yeah, tough
3: they're... because i know we shouldn't be saying that because it's a pleasure to be able to go and commentate on cricket wherever it is but in a way, those games, are, those series are hard because you, you do the game, finishes at kind of midnight, mm-hmm. you get back to the hotel and you're on a plane at nine in the morning to some other place and you're getting there late afternoon, training the next day, another game and, and then another tra- trip somewhere. So they are pretty demanding, aren't they, those trips?
1: Yeah, it's not like, a, you know, it's not like playing Lords one day and then the Oval the next match. You know, you'll, you've normally got a one, two hour plane journey plus all that, you know, all that around it as well. So that, that's gone now. Do you remember
3: that Do you remember that game we covered once at that World Cup game we covered in Bangladesh where we had to get <laughs> there from Bangalore and we had to go Bangalore, Calcutta and then there's no direct flight, uh, internal flight from Calcutta to Dhaka even though it's only about 25 miles or something. So you have to go from the domestic to the international terminal and then hop over to Dhaka with about a four-hour delay in the flight. Yeah. So, you know, a, a trip which probably should take if it was as the crow flies direct flight probably take two hours or two and a half hours it takes yeah. about 12 hours and then we but got I- there and the game lasted west it was west indies <laughs> bangladesh wasn't it west indies bowled bangladesh out for 50 odd knocked yeah. off the runs in about six overs And then we were on the plane
1: back. Well, you say we were on the plane back. Someone cancelled my flight back.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, we wanted to
1: leave you there, you see. (laughs) Yeah, the other thing about that match was the lines didn't work as well. So So we we were commentating on an iPad. Our producer Tim Peach had to sort of put something together that he'd never done before, <laughs> and, and uh, I, I think actually in the end we were quite relieved that Bangladesh were all out for about fifty or sixty because it was quite a, an arduous uh, experience and well the whole the whole package really of, of of getting there and then trying to get out of the country isn't as it, well. Isn't it funny? Um, it just
3: shows how broadcasting's changed, isn't it? Because you know, 2011, there we were thinking how weird it was commentating on a phone or an ipad or something and now we're doing it right now (laughs) we're commentating online you know remotely so it shows how the world has adapted really
1: well the broadcasting world yeah yeah things have have changed enormously well my first ever world cup in india back in 1996 you know you'd have something called a, a four wire and you'd be one day the day before a game you'd be plugged in from whatever your venue is into into delhi and then hopefully the next day someone in delhi would plug you through to someone in london it was you know a laborious process But so these days you know you just dial them up yep dial them up you, you're straight through anyway that's, that's sort of like all our yesterdays the world the world <laughs> moves on technologically I think we've seen that in the last few months with with Zoom and you know everyone's now uh, working at home we realised what's possible thanks to the yeah. the internet Uh, Revolution. So, who are you backing to to win this uh, one-day series? Then Uh, we've established that uh, you know it does matter. It's not you know fixture fulfilment right at the fag end of the of the season. You know it's a it's part of the World Super League. So qualification points, the World Cup on offer. Ten points for a win. Uh, Are England uh, clearly favourites, or is this Australia side good enough to to really challenge them? As of course they did in the World Cup last year. They beat them at Lords, but then. Lost very heavily to them at Edgbaston in the World Cup semi final.
3: Yeah, I mean,
1: I think England are favourites. Uh, you know, they're
3: at home. They've played a lot more cricket than the Aussies have recently. Uh, they still, they've got a, a more stable set-up. They know how each other play. They're without Stokes, obviously. They're they're missing a key man, but I think apart from that, they're pretty much at full strength. I mean, they've sort of replaced Liam Plunkett with with a Tom Curran or someone like that. So. I, I think that England are more secure in how they play. Australia is slightly more unknown, especially that middle order. I, I'm disappointed with someone like Glenn Maxwell that he can't quite deliver. He's got the talent of Jos Butler, but he hasn't got the consistency. And if he could find that way of delivering more often, under pressure especially, I think that would be a, a, a big turning point because he's actually a very effective bowler as well. He's a good limited overs bowler and a brilliant fielder but he hasn't ever quite really cemented his place. And, you know, apart from him, we've comes in uh, to sort of bolter that middle order, Stoinis is a dangerous player, you know. I don't feel Ashton Agar is a solution at number seven. I think he's a weak link. You know, he's got a best score in T20s of 29 or something. So, you know, uh, I can't see him really being a, a force in uh, uh, white ball cricket at number seven. So they need to find somebody in that spot. Obviously, Finch and Warner, top players. Smith hasn't yet fired in this uh, short series, but maybe he will at Old Trafford. It's going to be tight games, but I just think England, with the X factor of Butler, with uh, Archer and Wood's pace, with Rashid, you know, and his clever variations, and obviously their their strength of power
1: at the top of the order, I just think England are... I think in these short-form series, they're notoriously hard to predict... But England at home, I think 2-1, similar to the the T20 series. But, you know, it it should be a really riveting series. Australia have got the quality. I think a lot depends on, you know, Warner, Warner and Finch at the top, Smith, perhaps Labashane. And then what Australia's gun pace bowlers can do as well, if they can just limit this England batting lineup. Jason Roy coming back into the side. He's not played a lot. There's a potential opportunity there for Australia at the top of the order to to make early inroads, especially because their bowling is so good. You know, we saw it in the, the T20 series, you know, the likes of, of Hazelwood and, and Stark and Cummins. You know, they've got quality bowling in that lineup. So They're, they're test-match bowlers, but, you know, they're, they're very good at the top of the order. if They can knock over some early England wickets. And there's no Ben Stokes. You know, I think it's quite an easy series, actually. It's hard to, it's hard to separate them, possibly England 2-1, but it wouldn't surprise me if Australia uh, got up 2-1, as well.
3: Oh you fence sitter you well, anyway I listen I mean I, the, the key thing is going to be how the analysts do and I don't mean me I mean the two team analysts because data and statistics and matchups are all the, the rage in one day cricket and all forms of cricket now and that's why this current issue of the Cricketer Magazine has the title The Data Decade and we look at how the game is covered and how it's analysed and how it's uh, you know scrutinised in so many different ways now, not just with wordsmiths crafting beautiful prose. So uh, on next week's show, as an echo to this current issue of The Cricketer magazine, which you can get at www.thecricketer.com, there's a special offer there at the moment, we're going to interview next week two people from the same family who cover the game in totally different ways. And then I've had a lot, I'm sure, to write about over this weekend with these three one day matches. I hope you enjoyed them, and we'll speak to you after the last of those games early next week. Thanks for listening.